You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Olds, Alberta. It is our prayer that through this ministry, we will see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, or to let us know how we can be praying for you, visit us online at www.redemptionolds.com or send us an email at info at redemptionolds.com. A couple of announcements where we jump in, not really announcements, I guess, um, updates. One is I'm, I bring greetings from your brothers and sisters, uh, Redemption Church Red Deer. I had the privilege of preaching there last night. They meet Saturday nights, and uh, God continues to do a great work there. It is exciting to be part of this, uh, this church planting network and see uh, a group there uh, of 140, 150 gathered. Um, they're meeting in the, the dome uh, outside Red Deer, this massive soccer field thing. So it's been a long time since I've uh, preached out on the grass, kind of very uh, George Whitfield-esque, um, but uh, uh, great blessing to see the Lord at work there. Continue to pray for them. And again, if you know people in Red Deer who are in need of a good, solid Bible preaching church, um, that's the place to send them. Um, God is doing a work there. Um, I also want to give you a quick update uh, on the Karens and Owen, who we've been praying for. He's been uh, in hospital. He's now, um, they're, they're continuing to wean him off of the, the, the heavier drugs, the sedatives that he's been on. He's responding to that well. Um, he's still on the, the ventilator, and, and they are hopefully today going to be uh, transitioning him off of the ventilator. So be praying for them. And uh, today is the last day. If you, uh, we've been taking um, donations for them. Now, as a church, we can't, we can't take a donation and give you a tax receipt and then just turn around and give it to them. Um, that gets frowned upon. Um, but what we can is just collect that donation and deliver it to them. So it's not tax receivable. Um, but that black offering box at the back is for them. So you can put um, cash in there. If you write a check, just make it out to John and Laura Cairns directly and uh, we will be delivering that to them. So this is the last Sunday for that. Um, as well, we have been giving to um, our GCC churches uh, in, in Ukraine and Romania and Moldova as they are right on the front lines of serving the Lord and preaching the gospel in the midst of the crisis there. Um, our church in Kiev has 120 families that have stayed there for the purpose of sharing the gospel uh, in the middle of the, the chaos. So be praying for them. Uh, and if you want to give to that, that is uh, tax receivable. That, can, uh, that check can be made out to Redemption Church, or you can send it via um, e-transfer to finances at redemptionolds.com. And just mark clearly that that is for uh, Ukraine. Um, and uh, after this week, we'll be done collecting those here. You can still give uh, to GCC Canada if you want to give that way. Um, so updates on those. Now, this morning uh, is a special morning. We call it Family Worship Sunday, and I know some of you parents cringe, and it's hard, and it's noisy, and it's busy, and I love you for it. Uh, it is good for us to be together. It is good to have our kids in uh, for the preaching of God's Word, and uh, so we want to embrace that, uh, and, and with that, we embrace a little extra noise. So if your kids are a little noisy, um, praise the Lord, we have kids. Um, what a gift. What a blessing. We should not begrudge that, and so your neighbors are not not scowling at you. They are rejoicing together. And uh, if, uh, 
you know what, they've either had kids or have been a kid. And so there's no, there's no judgment here. We know how discipline works and how training kids works. Embrace it. Uh, kids, you should have that little fill-in sheet. Um, if you don't have one of those fill-ins, just raise your hand up. Um, I say kids, but come on. Adults, you can use it too if you want. Help you kind of know where I'm going. Um, but I have chocolate after the service. So everyone's got one by the looks of it. No hands are up. All right, so fill that out. Now, if you're a little bit small for writing, draw me a picture and uh, meet me at the back after the service and, uh, and I would love to uh, reward you um, with, some, uh, with some chocolate for listening this morning. Turning your Bibles uh, with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 14 to 17. Uh, if you don't have a Bible on you, there should be one in the pew right near you. Uh, it is all about God's Word. Uh, I have nothing to say this morning. There is nothing of value inside this head. Um, all I have is God's word. And so that is our goal is to sit down and to hear together from God's word. So we want you to have a Bible open on your lap in front of you. You can look down and see uh, and, and say, oh, John said that, but the verse says this. I'm going with this. And you can come talk about that afterwards. I'm happy to have those conversations if I miss something or, or you don't understand something. Um, but our goal is to be um, students together of God's word. So, um, and again, if, if you don't have a Bible at home or one you can read easily, take this one home with you. It's our gift to you. Uh, we want you to have it. Uh, so Romans chapter 1, if you are in the, the Pew Bible here, that is uh, page 938. Um, well, as I mentioned, uh, right now as we speak, uh, there is this struggle for power happening uh, in the Ukraine. Uh, Vladimir Putin and the, the Russian army are attempting to use all of their power to assert control over the country of Ukraine. President Zelensky and the Ukrainian people are fighting back. They are using all of their power um, to resist that, to try to maintain control of their country and their lives. And all of the other world powers at the same time are flexing their muscles and, and jockeying for position and influence, trying to support Ukraine or support Russia. And, and, and beyond that, there's the threat of escalating power. Right now, it's the, the showdown between the Air Force and the air defenses. And, and of course, um, there's the very real threat of escalating to the ultimate, uh, to, to nuclear war. The, the final display, the ultimate show of power. And there's somebody in each of those countries who has been entrusted with those nuclear codes, right? Who has their, their finger on the proverbial big red button. They, they are the ones to unleash that power. What could be more powerful than that? Well, today we're going to talk about another kingdom, a different kingdom and its power. Not Russia or Ukraine or United States or, or China, but a kingdom that wields a weapon of far greater power, not, not just than each of those kingdoms, but than all of those kingdoms combined. And of course, that is the kingdom of God. And the great weapon of that kingdom, the weapon of power that dwarfs even the mighty nuclear powers of our day, the weapon by which this kingdom uh, will ultimately win, will ultimately overthrow and replace every earthly kingdom, is none other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that weapon, that weapon of, of uncontainable, unimaginable power has been entrusted to you to me. We so easily and so often 
underestimate the, the wondrous power of the gospel and therefore the weighty responsibility of the gospel. Our church mission statement is to see lost people saved, saved people matured, mature people multiplied, all to the glory of God, right? Lost people saved, saved people mature, mature people multiplied, all to the glory of God. That's what we're about. That's why we're gathered. If you're reading that and thinking, I'm not interested in that, I love you, you're in the wrong place. That's what we're about. You can keep coming, but that's what we're about. So this is good news because the the gospel is our tool and it is powerful to accomplish that task. It is mighty to save. If we want to see lost people saved um, and and save people mature to mature people multiply, then, then we need to rightly understand the power of this gospel and we need to rightly wield this gospel and as we strive to, to grow in that, and as we work through this, this series of, of, of why we do what we do, we want to look at evangelism. Why do we do evangelism? What is evangelism all about? And, and, and to answer that, I want us to look at Romans chapter 1, as I said, verses 14 to 17. Let me uh, read these verses for us. Paul writes, I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Would you pray with me? Father, sanctify us by the truth. Your word is truth. So God, we come this morning trembling before your word. God, would you soften our hard hearts? Would you open our deaf ears? God, would you overcome um, the weakness and the sinfulness in us? that your word might take root, that we might stand this morning in awe and wonder of the power of your gospel, that we might go from this place more uh, faithfully committed to that gospel than when we came in. God, would you be at work in me? Lord, that as I speak, that my words would be true to your word. God, that if there's anything that I, that I say that is not from your truth, God, that those words would fall to the ground and be forgotten. But God, that your word would stand, that your word would endure, that your word would, as you promised, not return void, but accomplish what you have sent it to do in our hearts this morning. God, we welcome it. We pray that your Holy Spirit uh, would be at work in us now through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Well, as you know, the book of Romans uh, is, is one of the deepest, richest, most complex theological books in the New Testament. 
It was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome. Um, he had never been to Rome, but he had numerous friends there in the church, and, and he had hopes of visiting them soon, but because he was not able to come immediately, he wrote them this letter. And these verses, specifically verses 16 and 17, uh, have often been said to be uh, the thesis statement of this entire letter. Um, these verses are the, the big idea of the book of Romans. And, and as we, uh, if, if you were to read through the rest of the book, you would see he's, he's just unpacking the meaning of these verses. And so as we look at, at these few verses today and think about our role in evangelism, I want us to, I want us to first to feel the pull of the gospel and to know the power of the gospel and then to rest in the peace of the gospel. So uh, first, verses 14 and 15 um, we should feel the pull of the gospel. Feel the pull of the gospel. Let me read these verses again just to have them in front of us. Verse 14, Paul says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Um, most of your Bibles will have like a paragraph break there between verses 15 and 16. And so you're thinking, well, why doesn't he stop where the paragraph break is? Because um, God didn't write the Bible with paragraph breaks. Because uh, it all flows together. Because it's all dependent on, on, on every verse. They're knit together. And so um, really, as, as we look at it, though, there is a bit of a logical break there. Um, verse, verses 14 and 15 are kind of the tail end of Paul explaining um, why he wants to come to Rome, why he wants to visit their, their church and their city. And his, and his first reason, that they as believers um, would be mutually encouraged by one another. Um, as I got to go to Red Deer last night and preach there and tell them, um, give them greetings from their brothers and sisters and olds, and, and we, we mutually encouraged one another. We were spurred on to hear what God is doing there and what God is doing here, and, and it's a beautiful thing. And Paul says, that's just great. We want to we be encouraged by one of those believers. Uh, but then verse 13, he explains a second reason, and that is that he might reap a harvest among them and among the rest of the Gentiles. And so he, he wants to go to Rome so that more people would be saved. So he could proclaim the gospel and see, see more people come to Christ. Verse 14 then, where we're going to pick up, is him kind of getting to the why beneath that. Why preach the gospel? Why is he there to do that? This is the pull of the gospel that Paul feels. And first he says, we have a debt to share the gospel. We have a debt and he says, I'm under obligation. Well, that's, a, that's, a, that's an okay translation, um, but we need to realize that idea of obligation, both in the Greek and in the English, uh, it, it carries the idea of a debt to be paid. There is something outstanding. It's interesting, he speaks of his debt, um, not to the Lord. That's, that's kind of what I expected to see, I think, as you begin to work through this. But no, he says, my, my debt uh, is to the people there. And specifically to the, the Greeks, the barbarians, the wise, and the foolish. Why does he say that? And he hasn't borrowed anything from them. He hasn't stolen from them. What is this debt that he has incurred? How is it that he owes them? Well, think of it this way. Um, our church would love to have our own building. That's something we're looking for, praying for, hoping for in the future. Um, we're in this rented facility and we would love to buy or build our own place. Well, what would happen if Pastor Chris from 
Red Deer were to learn that uh, one of his relatives passed away and left him with an enormous sum of money. And he was quite generous and, and said, you know what, I want to build a church for the believers in Olds. And, uh, and so he would go to the bank and take out $10 million cash. I don't know if that's a, a backpack or a duffel bag or a tote bag, but whatever. Um, he were to bring that $10 million cash and give it to me and say, John, I want you to build a church in Olds. Go back to your people, build your dream building. Here's $10 million. Now, I haven't borrowed from you as a church. I haven't stolen anything from you. But, but so long as I am in possession of this bag of cash, I owe you. I am indebted to you. I've been given something that is for you. And so there is an, an indebtedness there. That's the way Paul feels about the gospel. God had entrusted him with this, this good news, this amazing gift. The, the message of, of salvation was given by God to Paul. And so he feels this burden then to deliver it. There's an, there's an obligation for me to, to fulfill this task, to pass it on. That's true. Paul uh, is in a unique position. He is an apostle and he is specifically the apostle to the Gentiles. And yet, have we not received the same gospel that Paul received? Uh, haven't we been forgiven, adopted, promised a, a glorious inheritance in eternity every bit as much as Paul has? Haven't we been sent out? Jesus told all of his followers, told all of his followers, go and make disciples of all nations. Listen carefully, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 19. Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Now listen to this. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So, so to whom was this message of reconciliation entrusted? It is entrusted to everyone who has been reconciled. If you know the truth of the gospel, if you have been forgiven of your sins and brought near to God, then you have been entrusted to take that message to the world. And so we, like Paul, have an obligation. We do. Just briefly, I want us to notice to whom Paul is obligated. He says the Greeks and the barbarians, the, the wise and the foolish. Um, the Romans, as they heard those words, Greeks and barbarians, they, they had categories there that made sense to them. What they would hear there were the insiders and the outsiders. The Greeks, that's us. The barbarians, that's those other people. That's the foreigners, the outsiders. The words wise and foolish kind of have the same effect. Wisdom was highly regarded in the Greek culture. So Paul is saying the, the wise, the, the respected, the honorable people, the important people, and the foolish, the, the unrespected, the outsiders, the downcast, the unimportant people. In both cases, uh, what he's doing is, is pointing to two opposite ends of humanity and saying both of them, and the implication is that everybody in between. Everybody in between. Our, our obligation is to all people. It's to all people. He's echoing 
Jesus from Acts 1.8. Right? Jesus says, you'll be my witnesses in where? Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And in those categories, there's a, a physical difference. There's a, a distance of geography, but there's also a radical difference of, of kinds of people and the people that they respected and the people that they hated. And Jesus said, go, all of them. It's so easy for us to categorize people. We think that maybe, maybe one neighbor, we say, yeah, he would listen to the gospel. He's the, the kind of person that I think would, would listen and be saved, right? He would fit right in at church. It makes sense. And then we look at someone else, and we would never say it, but we wonder. They're not really like us. They're just different from us. They probably aren't the kind of person who would trust in Christ. I just, I just kind of doubt it. I, I don't know that they would be interested, and so we're hesitant to share. Paul's right. Shocker, Jesus was right. This is our command. Wise, foolish, cultured, uncultured, doesn't matter. This gospel is for all people, every human being. We are obligated to all men then that obligation, what is it exactly? Our obligation to everyone is to preach, to preach. That's how we fulfill this task. We preach. The, the Greek word for preach there is euangelizomai, and, and, and it's, it's where we get our English word evangelism. Um, it's a combination of the word good and message just kind of smashed together. And so we, we are told to Deliver the good message, just to speak the good word. So often we get caught up and concerned about whether or not people will get saved. Right? That's how we get caught in that first trap of, I don't know if they'll respond or not. I don't think they're very likely to listen. And we get wrapped up. Am I going to be able to convince them of the truth? Are we going to be able to defend the truth? Am I going to be able to, to answer their objections or their questions? Um, am I going to be able to, to close the deal? And of course, of course, our, our hope, our, our heart's desire is that they would hear the gospel and receive it, that they would, they would hear and, and trust in the Lord and be saved. And so we we're, going to be, we're going to be winsome and we're going to be passionate. We're going to be pleading and even relentless as we share the gospel. But, but our debt, our obligation is not to save people. You don't have that kind of power. That is way above your pay grade. It's outside of what we're capable of doing. And so if you bear that burden in evangelism, if, you're, if you go into that conversation thinking, I need to save this person, you're right to be paralyzed by fear and insecurity. But that's not actually a burden that you're meant to bear. That's not yours. Our job is not to transform hearts. Our job is simply to proclaim the truth, to, to deliver the good news. Going back to the, the illustration of the bag of cash, right? Your job is not to make sure they open it and receive it and build a church. Your job is just to deliver it, just to drop it off. Here it is. This is the good news. Do we feel the pull of that responsibility? Do we feel the, the weight of that indebtedness that we carry? You chat with your neighbors and your co-workers, people that you rub shoulders with on a regular basis, do you think about the fact that before God, 
I have been entrusted with this message of reconciliation. I am under an obligation to them to deliver this message. If I'm, if I'm not sharing this gospel message with them, I am I'm withholding on a debt that I owe. Who are the people in your life right now? I think every one of us has somebody that we could stop and think, yeah, this week I could have that conversation with that person. It's right, it's right there. It won't be easy. It won't be comfortable. It's not the point. Would you commit right now before the Lord to starting that conversation? You're not going to you know, finish the conversation. I hope you don't finish the conversation. I hope it begins a long, ongoing conversation. But would you just start it? You know, I love to just ask people, did, did you grow up going to church? People love to tell you their story. That's just an easy way to start that. Did you grow up going to church? Oh, I did or I didn't or on and on. Whatever. Talk about it. Oh, what do you think about God and heaven and hell? And, and let, them, let them share what they think. You'll hear all kinds of interesting perspectives. And then you have the opportunity to just say, well, let me tell you what I think. Let me tell you what I believe. Let me tell you what the Bible says. Just start the conversation. Now notice there's a distinct shift between verses 14 and verses 15. Um, he begins with this obligation. There is, there's an external burden on him to share the gospel with everyone and anyone. But then verse 15 is actually an internal motivation that grows. He says, I am eager to preach. Eager. It's not just an obligation of a debt. There's a, there's a burning desire in his heart, an excitement, a, a passion. Verse 16 tells us why. Have a look at verse 16. Let me read it for us. For, so he says, verse 15, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Verse 16, for, because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes to the Jews first and also to the Greek. We need to not only feel the pull of the gospel, but we need to know the power of the gospel. We need to know the power of the gospel. Now, the first question we need to answer as we turn to this verse is, is why Paul even says that he's not ashamed. Um, all kinds of commentators kind of trip over themselves, trying to, I think, trying to defend Paul's honor. Paul's not ashamed. It's not like Paul would be ashamed. Paul would never be ashamed. I think John Stott gets it right when he points out there's really no point in saying I'm not ashamed unless there was a temptation or a reason to be ashamed. And of course there is. Of course there is. Paul himself said in, in 1 Corinthians 1.18, the, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. It's ridiculousness. It's foolishness. Back in the 50s, they were doing some archaeological digging in Rome, and they came across what some have said uh, might be the earliest depiction of Jesus. It's graffiti scratched onto a wall. It's a picture of a man standing in front of a cross, and the, the inscription below says, Alexamenos worships his God. So whoever this Alexamenos kid was, he was getting made fun of. He's getting mocked with graffiti on the wall, and there's the picture. The figure on the cross is not a man but a donkey. That's what they thought of Christianity. Here's Alexamenos worshiping his God, this donkey God that died on a criminal's cross. They mocked it. They ridiculed it. This is in Rome. And is it really that far from today? 
we are out of step with the modern world. We don't fit in. We don't believe in the, the obvious science of evolution. We're, we're not on board with a woman's right to choose to abort a baby. We're, we're not affirming of, of gay and trans lifestyles. We, we don't fit. We're out of touch. Christianity does not fit in this world. It doesn't fit. And in both the Roman and the modern culture, we are so audaciously small-minded to say that, that people are, are not essentially wonderful and good and just need to be given a chance, but that we're, we're essentially bad. We're, we're essentially evil at heart and deserving of judgment. And there's only one way to be saved. One, trusting in Jesus, the God who died a, a criminal's death. There is ample opportunity for us to be ashamed of the gospel. And we feel that. When think about it, around the office or around the shop or even just on YouTube or Facebook, as, as Christianity comes up in a secular context, how often is that a positive, affirming conversation? Not often. But listen, Paul says, I am eager. I am excited to go to, to Rome, to the, to the absolute heart of secularism in his day. I am eager to go there and share the gospel. I'm not ashamed. Why? Because it's the power of God. It's the power of God. In spite of all the mocking and the insulting, in spite of the constant maligning and, and misrepresentation, the gospel that we are obligated to proclaim is itself the very power of God. You see why Paul would shift from, from obligation and from being ashamed to being eager. This is an unimaginable privilege. So often um, we share the gospel message with hesitancy. We tremble. We're apologetic to speak. I, mean, I don't want to waste your time. I know this is problematic. And, and we kind of tiptoe through. And, and then we're filled with doubt. We wonder. What are the chances that, that this makes any difference? It's so unlikely that they would actually hear and believe this. Can I, can I really expect this person to, to turn from their sin and trust in Christ? Like, what are the chances? But this message, this gospel message that we have been entrusted with is not only the truth, and it is not only good news, but it, it is actually power. The gospel is the power of God. As we talk about human power, as we look around our world today, we, we see the, the power displayed in the ability to kill and destroy. The power to obliterate a whole city. That destructive power is nothing compared to the power that it takes to bring spiritual life out of spiritual death. Now, if this is our power, if this is something that we're supposed to do and it's my job to, to, to save someone, to, to bring about life from the dead, doubt is too weak a word. This is absolutely hopeless. Jeremiah 13, 23, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard change his spots? So then also you can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. Go ahead, give, give it a try. Just 
Change your skin color. Make it darker, lighter. Change your, maybe your eye color. Anybody? Can you, can you flash your eyes a different color, even just for a second? Maybe make yourself taller or shorter. If, if we can't change the, the simple, basic, physical things about ourselves, what makes you think you can change the very nature of your heart? It's exactly Jesus' point in John 3, 3, as he's talking with Nicodemus. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus says, what? I can't do that. How am I supposed to do that? I, I can't go back into my mother's womb. I had, I had nothing to do with my first birth. I couldn't make my first physical birth happen. How am I supposed to make a, a spiritual birth happen? And Jesus says, you're getting it. You're catching on. You're figuring it out. You're right, you can't. He says, this is a work that the Holy Spirit does. 1 Corinthians 2, 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. He is dead in his trespasses and sins. He is a hater of God and a lover of this world. And as the things of God are revealed to him, he despises them. He's not able to. He has no ability to, to know, to love the things of God. And there's no power in man to change that. We don't have a machine for that, a tool for that. There's no surgery for that kind of heart transplant. Only the power of God accomplishes that. And that's exactly what the power of God does. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, one of my favorite descriptions of the work of salvation. God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So he's, he's hearkening back very intentionally, very deliberately to the days, or can we call them days, the time there was before creation. There's just darkness, void, nothing. And God, who had the power to speak into nothing and call light into existence. So, so I, I, have a, I have a Google Home, and, and I can say, hey, Google, turn on the lights, and they turn on. Um, but light already existed before that. And there's power flowing and all kinds of things happening. God spoke into nothing, and light showed up for the first time. And that is the same God and the same power at work that speaks into our dead heart and says, let there be light. And the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ comes. That's power. That's power. As we speak the gospel, as we fulfill that task, we can preach we can preach with absolute confidence because of the power of God. Because the power of God is at work through the gospel. Now notice, it is the power of God for salvation. The gospel is not a power of God. It is not one of the ways that God saves. It is the only way of salvation. There are two sides to that fact. First, that no one will be saved apart from Christ. No one will be saved apart from Christ. Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 
The power of God for salvation is in the gospel, is in hearing the good news, the message about Jesus. There's no other way. If you don't know Jesus, if you don't know his name, you, you don't have salvation. It is that simple. No one will be saved apart from Christ. But it also means that no one will be saved apart from the preaching of this gospel. No one will be saved apart from the the preaching of this gospel. And and yes, the message of the gospel goes out in in numerous ways. On TVs and books and and pamphlets and, 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 and all of these things. But it has to go out. That message is essential. Romans 10, 13, beloved verse for many, for, for, for good reason. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Hallelujah. Verse 14, how then will they call on whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in whom they've never heard? And how will they hear unless someone preaches? There's a cause and effect here. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be, on the name of the Lord will be saved, but they, they can't call on him unless you tell them, unless they hear about him. God has entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. The gospel is the power of God for salvation, and he sent us to deliver it. The end of verse 16, we see again the salvation for everyone who believes. Similar to verse 14, the the Greeks, the barbarians, the wise, the foolish. Here he says the the Jews and the Greeks, two sides of humanity, two very different groups. And and by that he implies and everyone in between. Now there's a a spiritual dynamic to these two different groups. Paul will explain that in depth in Romans 10 and 11. You can go read that this afternoon if you want to dive into that more. Um, But the promises of God were first made to the Jews. It was to the Jews that that Jesus was sent as their Messiah. The Greeks were Gentiles. They were non-Jews. They were outside of the people of God. They had no claim on the the promises that God had made. They were not his chosen people. But as the Jews rejected Christ, God was working out his plan that he had been building from the beginning, that he had been uh, unveiling even through the Old Testament, that Jesus would be a light to the nations. That heaven would be filled with people from every tribe and language and nation and tongue. That that Christ would come and rescue not only Jews, but Gentiles and Greeks and anyone. There is no distinction of your spiritual background. His power would be on display, saving people from every walk of life, from every nation, from every people. Do you know that power of the gospel? Do you really understand the mighty work of God for salvation of lost sinners giving life to dead souls? If we really grasped that, if we really understood the spiritual realities at play, how could we ever be ashamed? Oh, if we knew this truth in our hearts, we, we wouldn't be fearful or timid. We would be like Paul. We would be eager to share the gospel. You wouldn't be able to get us to shut up about it. Here he comes again. We're going to hear the gospel again. And we know God in, in his wisdom and by his plan, he doesn't, he doesn't save every person that we share the gospel with. That's 
maybe does for you. If, if he does, I'd like to go with you sometime. Let's, that sounds exciting. Let's do this. Um, but that's not been my experience. God has a plan. And yet, every gospel conversation, every time we are bold enough to open our mouths and begin to proclaim the gospel, there's an opening of that door. And there is, a, there is a possibility there that the mighty power of God might come rushing in, might change the eternal destiny, might raise a dead soul to life, and we'd get to be a part of that. Feel the pull of the gospel. Know the power of the gospel. Let that be your confidence. Think about that as you begin to speak with your, your neighbor, your coworker, your friend, your family member this week. Okay, Holy Spirit, bring it and speak. Share, trusting, knowing the power of the gospel. Then thirdly, uh, we need to rest in the peace of the gospel. Rest in the peace of the gospel. This is verse 17. Paul writes, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So again, anyone following the, the, the logical flow of these verses, we, we see um, Paul feels this indebtedness to preach the gospel. At the same time, he's, he's eager to do so. He's eager to proclaim it because that, that gospel is the very power of God, and it's powerful and effective to save anyone who believes. Why? What is this power? What does it look like? How is it that the gospel is able to save wise and foolish, Greek and barbarian, Jew and Greek? And the answer to that question is verse 17, because in it, because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. So first we have to ask, what does that mean? What does it mean that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed? It's, it's tricky. People have debated that for many years. There are all kinds of different answers to that question. And we try to boil it down to three. First, some would say that in the gospel, we see the attribute of God's righteousness, the attribute of God's righteousness. In the gospel, we see that, that God is righteous. It's a fact. It's true. The second option is that in the gospel, we see the activity of God making people righteous. There's, a, there's an ongoing active process there. We, we see the activity of God making people righteous. The third option is that in the gospel, we see the achievement of God in making people righteous. It's a settled truth. In the gospel, we see the, the gift of righteousness that God imputes to those who believe. And as you can see, the reason that debate keeps going is that those are all good options. Those are all biblically true. We could, we could make those points from other places in Scripture. None of them is heresy. None of them is wrong. Uh, the question is, what exactly is Paul intending to say here? Why does he say that here? And I think if we look at the context of these verses, even flowing through to Romans 4, and we look at the, the, the argumentation here, I think it leads us to the third option. The gospel as the power of God is salvation to 
anyone who believes. It doesn't matter, regardless of their Jew or Gentile, Greek, barbarian, wise or foolish, because in the gospel, God has achieved righteousness for us. A righteousness that is a gift to us that is not our own. And so it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter how much wisdom you have or, or how important you are because the gospel comes with a gift of righteousness. The gospel gives us righteousness as a gift. In this context, our greatest need is, is not, not, that, not, not to know that God is righteous, not to know necessarily the activity of God making people functionally actually righteous, but the provision of God's righteousness that we don't have. This gets right to the heart of the gospel. We've talked about the gospel a lot this morning. We have not yet stopped to define it. And so let's just do that. I love to ask people, um, Many of you have been the victim of this, and if you go through our membership process, you're going to have this question a few times, so this is your fair warning. Here's your cheat sheet, study for the test. just love to ask people, what is the gospel? Let them sweat a little bit. It's good for us. What is the gospel? And of course, if we're feeling the pull of the gospel and we, and we know the power of the gospel, boy, we want to be able to, to clearly articulate the gospel are a number of helps in that, creative outlines in sharing the gospel, the Romans road or the way of the master. And those are, those are great tools. The one I like to use personally, um, just to keep in the back of my mind as a, as a grid, um, is just four words. Um, they're, they're laid out in, in Greg Gilbert's little book, What is the Gospel? Um, it's in our library if you want to check that out. Um, got, to, got to walk through this just Friday afternoon with somebody. Uh, four words, God, man, Christ, response. First is God. There is a God. He is holy and perfect. He created this world and he owns it, everything in it. He is ruler over it. And there's man. We were created in God's image for his glory, created to have relationship with him in which we find our joy and our meaning and our purpose and satisfaction in life. But we sinned against him. We rebelled against him. We went looking for that joy and meaning and purpose in things of this world, in created things rather than the creator. We turned our backs on him, rebelled against him. And because of that, uh, our world is coming apart. Our world is like a, a washing machine that has gone off balance and is starting to rattle and shake and rock and pull apart at the seams. That's why we have brokenness. That's why we have earthquakes and tsunamis and, 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 and things in our world are breaking down. And that's why we have broken families and broken marriages and relationships and wars and all of it. And for that sin of rebellion against God, we deserve hell. Every one of us. That's, that's where we stand before God. God, man, next is Christ. That's why Jesus came. God himself took on human flesh, died on the cross in our place. He took the punishment that we deserved so that we could be reconciled to God. And then he rose victorious from the dead as, as proof that his sacrifice was acceptable to God and that he was, in fact, victorious over our greatest enemies. He has defeated sin and death for us. God, man, Christ, response. This good news 
comes requesting, requiring a response. The biblical response is, is twofold, but it's two sides of the same coin. It's repentance and faith. Repentance means I'm going to turn away from that old life. I'm going to renounce the life of serving and seeking self and sin. I'm going to turn away from that. But of course, you can't turn away from something without turning to something else. And that's what faith is. Faith is turning to Christ. I'm going to trust in Him. I'm going to submit to Him as my Savior, as my Lord. God, man, Christ response. Now, if I'm walking through that with someone or I'm hearing them explain the gospel and it's just not clear. I just, just want to know that they really get it. I'm going to ask a follow-up question. And that follow-up question is this. If you were to die today, stand before the Lord in his judgment throne. And, and for sake of argument, let's say Satan is there and he says, I saw John. He was short-tempered. He, 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 he lied, he said this, he said that, he did this, he did that, and he's right. He's right, I'm guilty. And God were to, to look at you and say, why should I let you into my heaven? How do you answer that? What do you say? I am guilty before God, why should I let you into my heaven? Go ahead, formulate your answer. What would you say to the Lord in that moment of eternal significance. So many people, when it comes right down to it, when they're put on that spot, well, I went to church, I gave in the offering, I was a pretty nice guy, I'm better than my neighbor, I didn't drink too much, I, didn't, I tried not to swear, I didn't go to that R-rated movie. If that's your answer, or if it's any variation of that, maybe make it simple as I can. If your answer begins with the word I, it's wrong. There is no hope of salvation in it. It's not the gospel. The only acceptable answer, the only answer that saves is the answer that verse 17 gloriously gives us. This verse was actually the spark that ignited the Reformation. Do you know that? This is where the Protestant church came uh, into existence. Martin Luther was a Catholic university professor. He had been studying the book of Romans for years. He had read this verse for years in the Latin as it was only ever read in the Catholic church. And, and in the Latin, it says that the gospel, in the gospel, the, the justificare of God is revealed. And, and that Latin word, justificare, most naturally means to, to make actually righteous. And so Luther understood, along with the whole of the Catholic Church, that it was in the gospel, through the church, through the sacraments, through being baptized and penance and 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 giving alms and all these things, it was through that that, that we are actually made righteous as people in our day-to-day -day lives to the point that we can get ourselves into heaven, or at least so that purgatory can kind of finish up what's left over and make us just, and then we get into heaven. That's what he was after. God's grace in that system um, is not just a forgiveness, it's a power that works in you to make you actually righteous. That's, that's what it means to be saved by grace in the Catholic understanding. But Luther had studied law, 
He had the mind of a lawyer, and he understood how absolutely perfectly righteous you would have to be to get into heaven. And if I were to, to die with, with one iota of sin left on my record, purgatory becomes hell. It's eternity. If I'm not perfect before the Lord, I'm damned. And so Luther wrestled with God. He spent hours every day in confession. He drove the other priests insane because he would never let them go. And he's confessing the most minute details and he's wrestling with God over this, trying to make himself righteous. And about this verse, Luther said, I so hated the righteousness of God. He hated it. How about you? I was there growing up in a Christian home, seeing the perfection of God and trying to reach that, my heart not understanding grace, trying to put on the perfect exterior, knowing that inside I was rotten and broken and corrupt. I hated God because I couldn't meet that standard. He demanded something I could never give. That's where Luther was until he got his hands on something very unique in his day. He got his hands on uh, a Greek New Testament, and he began to work through uh, the book of Romans. And as he came to chapter 1, verse 17, listen to these words. He wrote, Then finally God had mercy on me. He knows where it starts. And I began to understand the righteousness of God is a gift of God by which the righteous man lives, namely faith. And that sentence, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel, is passive. So it's, it's, it's something we receive, indicating that the, the merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now I felt as though I had been reborn. I, I think he was. I think he saved at this moment. He said, I felt as though I was reborn and it entered paradise. In that same moment, the face of the whole of Scripture became apparent to me. My mind ran through the Scriptures as far as I was able to recollect them, seeking analogies and other phrases such as the work of God by which he makes us strong, the wisdom of God by which he makes us wise, the strength of God, the salvation of God, the glory of God, just as intensely as I had once hated the expression, the righteousness of God, I now lovingly praised this most pleasant word. This passage from Paul became to me the very gate of paradise. He understood the gospel. Do you see it? The righteousness of God as a gift to the unrighteous. If the gospel message is a message that we can listen to and then begin to do a little bit better, begin to work a little bit harder, begin to clean ourselves up a little more, make ourselves a little more worthy, we will be damned. That's it. It's over for us. All of our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. If we're trusting before God in anything that we have done, anything that we must do, we can expect nothing from God but judgment. If your answer to that question, why should I let you into my heaven, begins with I, it's game over. The only answer in which there is any hope is Jesus. It's him. 
He died in my place. I am not righteous, but he is, and he has given me his righteousness, which I in no way deserved. Luther called it an alien righteousness, a righteousness from outside me, not from inside of me. The righteousness of God that belonged to Christ, but through the gospel is imputed, is given to me. Luther's words again, justification is not a change in man, but the gracious declaration of God by which he pronounces righteous the sinner who is in himself not righteous. That's hope. That's the peace of the gospel. That in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed as a gift for a sinner to receive and be made righteous before God. If righteousness is a gift from God, then anyone can be saved. Then Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Because it doesn't depend on me. The most wretched and vile, the most foolish and simple, the most undeserving and outcast can just as easily be reconciled to God because it's God's righteousness that matters, not ours. That's the peace of the gospel. In that, our salvation then, Paul says, is from faith for faith. I think the simplest way to understand that is just to say it's all faith. Start to finish, it's faith that saves. We are saved by grace through faith alone. Not faith and our works, not faith and my baptism or faith and my confession or whatever else, just faith alone. It is by faith and for faith. So Paul finishes verse 17 quoting um, the, the crucial central verse from the book of Habakkuk. Um, as, as people of Israel were, were living in sin and, and God was bringing judgment and destruction on them by the hands of the Babylonians, um, Habakkuk is wrestling with God. He's questioning the, the righteousness of God, using a wicked people to punish sin in his chosen people. And, and, and you know the story. Habakkuk cries out to God and then he says, I'll wait. I'll wait in my watchtower. I will listen for your answer. And, and this is God's answer. Habakkuk 2.4, behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. It's God's answer to Habakkuk. Trust me. Have faith and you will live. The righteous will live by faith. The, the proud, the self-sufficient, the arrogant, those who are trusting in their own works, who are trying to impress God by all the things they do, his soul's not right within him. He's puffed out before God. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. The righteous will live by faith. The Lord's saying, trust me. Enemies surround you. I'm doing things that you don't understand. This world is difficult. There are battles going on. Trust me and live. Trust me and I will deliver you? Are you resting in the peace of the gospel? Quit striving. Quit trying to impress God with all the things that you can do. Rest in his righteousness. Now, 
out of that, that ought to spur a transformed life. That ought to spur a love for his word, a love for the people of God and gathering together and generosity. All those things should flow out of that. But the beginning is trust him, rest in the peace of the gospel. But let's not forget where we started. As we are resting in the peace of the gospel, receiving this ultimate unimaginable gift, we ought to again feel that pull of the gospel, the indebtedness that we have to share this glorious hope, to share this rest, to proclaim this good news to all who will listen, confident in the power of the gospel, inviting others to come. One of our six key attributes as a church is courageous evangelism in word and in deed. Are we living that out together? I know some of you are. I get the pleasure of hearing those those stories. Are we going out from this place, this gathering Sunday morning as evangelists into our week? Christianity is not a come and see religion, right? It is great to invite people to church I'm glad you invite people to church. Keep doing that. That's, that's fantastic. It's fine to have a big um, evangelism event and invite people to, to come and see, but we are primarily a go and tell religion, okay? Come to church with me on Sunday is not sharing the gospel. It's hoping they will come and hear the gospel. Our job is to go and share the gospel, to go out into the world. So we, we gather here. This is primarily for believers. This is not an evangelistic event. This is about the saints being built up in the word of God so that we might go out from here as evangelists. People often ask, what's your church's evangelism strategy? And I will say, you are. Let's go. We have been entrusted and indebted with this gospel. So there is nothing we can do as a church that will make us your neighbor's neighbor or your coworker's coworker. You have been given unique inlets into every part of this community. God has placed you there. Use that. Be an evangelist there. Matthew 9, 37. Then Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest and send out laborers that to send out laborers into the harvest. Church, the harvest is plentiful. Jesus is saying the field is, is ripe for the harvest. It's ready. There are, there are souls awaiting the gospel. The Holy Spirit is at work ahead of you. It's the laborers that are lacking. We are the laborers. So let's go. Let's pray that God would send out laborers into the fields and let's be part of the answer to that prayer. It's plentiful. With whom will you share this glorious gospel this week? With whom will you start that conversation about sin and judgment and the need for repentance and Christ. Encourage you. Make that commitment before the Lord. Carry it out. Just open your mouth and begin to speak. Trust. Trust in the power of God to do what only he can do. And, and then um, some plant, some water. Only God gives the growth. We, we do what we can and we trust the Lord with it. Listen, the, the proclamation of the gospel 
has to always be rooted in and flowing out of our own clinging to the gospel, our own need for the gospel and life in the gospel. And so this morning we're going to close celebrating communion together, reminding ourselves of what Christ has done for us, rejoicing in that great salvation, remembering resting in our own hearts and the work of Christ on our behalf, um, the, the more we love the gospel, the more we rehearse the gospel in our own hearts, the more we will feel that pull to share, and that's how it ought to be. Uh, and so we're going we're gonna to do a little bit differently this morning. Um, we're going to sing together as the elements are being poured out. Um, I'm going to come up after that. Thank you, good sir. Um, I'm going to come up after that and, and read the Ephesians passage that we usually read uh, and then just sit down. And I, and I want you just to have a few minutes sitting on your own. You partake um, in your own time before the Lord as you're uh, contemplating his goodness toward you, that amazing gift of righteousness. So um, again, take the, take the elements as, this, as we sing together and then um, in, the, in, the, in the quiet time between those next two songs, you just partake in your own timing uh, between you and the Lord. Would you stand? Let's sing together.